One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. This is Dr. Santosh Nadipuram, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I was watching <laughs> some some games, and we're pretty close to the Super Bowl now, right? It's it's almost the, the end of football season. J- Josh, I believe it's called the Superb Owl, uh, named all the way back in the history of football uh, when in fact the ball was made out of pure owl. We are weeks, a couple of weeks away from the Super Bowl, depending on when <laughs> when this episode goes out. <laughs> and we're a couple weeks after, or maybe a little more, uh, yes. from the World Cup. Oh yes, absolutely. And sandwiched right here in between a couple major sports is a bit of a month where we don't know what to do with ourselves. So I figured (laughs) that I would span this period to bring you an episode dedicated to the constant variety of sport. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, throws, blows, possibly hammer toes, concussions, (laughs) dancing, action, adventure, sports. And given that we're doing an episode dedicated to sports, so Santosh, you were kind enough to find a guest who focuses on uh, not only sports, but your level of patience, which are yeah. <laughs> less than 70 years old, an age <laughs> which you do not find many football players. Yes, I'm absolutely honored to introduce a colleague of mine uh, here at Cedar sinai where I work. Um, uh, I, I had the pleasure to meet her very recently. She is uh, currently an uh, assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at USC, and a primary care sports physician uh, specializing in pediatric athletes 
here at the Curlin Job Institute at Cedar Sinai Medical Center, as well as the medical director of pediatric sports medicine at Curlin Job, uh, Dr. Tracy L. Zaslow, MD. Thanks so much for having me today. It's a treat. <laughs> I don't talk about it too much, but I am a huge football fan. Uh, Josh does love the sports ball. Uh, he's actually, he's in a little more dangerous sports. He's into axe throwing, I know. <laughs> sports medicine is so specialized because Tracy, all of us, you know, when we went through medical school and then we specialized in quote unquote general medicine or pediatrics or whatever it is, they love to teach us about like the head and the torso and then everything else is kind of like, yeah, and there's some bones and muscles and such. And it really does seem to be, you know, when, when a patient comes to you is when they get the most attention of their kind of whole body head to toe. <laughs> what actually is sports medicine? Before we do our deep dive into trivia, history, and all the things that can go horribly right or wrong. It's a good question. Uh, so um, sports medicine, and maybe more specifically pediatric sports medicine, meaning the younger athlete under 25, 30 years of age, um, really refers to looking at any problems, any musculoskeletal um, problems, so sprains and strains and broken bones, concussions as well. Um, but when we say sports for kids, it's a really, really broad range. I mean, it goes from the kid who falls off the monkey bars to the toddler who trips while walking to the professional athlete um, from you know, an array of sports. So it's a really wide variety of um, athletes that we see and patients. So it sounds like your field is, is linked very closely with orthopedics, but you actually deal with the muscles on top, not just the bones. Yeah, I think I work very closely with orthopedic surgeons, um, but I am not a surgeon. So by trade, I trained in general pediatrics first and then went on to do a primary care sports medicine fellowship. So my expertise is really um, all of those problems that are not surgical and really trying to give a non-surgical perspective when maybe there's when we're kind of in the gray area. I like to introduce her sometimes, Josh, as the whole body sports doctor. <laughs> because especially when we're working in general pediatrics and sometimes there's, you know, elbow pain specifically or knee pain, something like that, tend to get kind of hyper-focused. And if we're working one-on-one, -on -one, maybe with a surgical specialist, there's a lot of kind of zooming in on, oh, okay, this is what's wrong. Maybe it's a specific ligament or a fracture or something like that. But you do need someone who understands the mechanics of the kid as a whole. And how's your... Yeah, no, thing? I think that's a really good way to sum it up. Because, um, you know, when we see patients, a lot of times your elbow pain that you were describing, and they might exist in their daily life with zero elbow pain, but then you get them on the pitching mound and they can't throw more than one or two throws without their elbow interfering by being painful or affecting the speed of their throws or, um, you know, the different accuracy of their throws. And so that's definitely where sports medicine comes in, kind of that fine tuning that we're really trying to get these um, patients to perform at the level they want to perform at. Which brings me to my first outdated movie reference the one where that uh, <laughs> kid hurts his arm and then can throw the insanely fast 
pitch. His tendons fused in such a weird way that his arm became like a rubber band. Have you seen seen that movie? Um, I'm I'm fascinated now. By the end (laughs) of this episode, we will we will track that movie down, and you can tell us how likely that kind of injury would be, or what you would do for it in in the real world. Uh, So, listening (laughs) audience, shout away. I know that we're a recorded after the fact episode, but (laughs) if you're loud enough. I just <laughs> might hear you for the name of the movie. So it's called Rookie of the Year. Uh, and yeah, so Tracy, he slips on a baseball and breaks his arm. Uh, he heals up. He attends a Chicago Cubs game, which I absolutely love because I grew up you know, in and around Chicago. So he catches a home run uh, and he, he tosses it back, but he, he winds up to throw it back. And from where he's out, you know, past the outfield, he throws it all the way to home plate. Arm just goes fatoing. And so then, of course, you know, you have the general manager standing up in movie fashion. He's like, Who's that kid? You know, kind of thing. And, and his tendons have healed a little too tight, enabling him yes. to throw a ball with incredible force. <laughs> but, uh, but also use it completely normally when he's not throwing, which is very weird. Sounds fascinating. And, and I just want to know how he fatoings. I'm not familiar with that movement. So I believe the toying is when your tendons fuse with the humerus. He the the pitching motion looks, at least in the movie, like a normal pitching motion. You've given me homework. I'm going home to watch the movie tonight. Oh well, if you're looking if you're looking for useless trivia, let's come back to rookie of the year and get into the history of your field. Sports medicine has been around for a while, and how far back? do you think it goes as a specialty in general? Well, I do remember uh, preparing for other presentations where I, you know, I did go back to look at the kind of, you know, ancient uh, kind of Greeks and when they were doing the early Olympics. And so that's probably some of the earliest that I found about it. Josh, are you going to take us back to one of your favorite eras of all time in pharaonic Egypt? Very tempting, but this one we're actually (laughs) headed back to ancient Greece and the Olympics. Uh, in the fifth century, where the the ancient ancestors of sports medicine physicians today can be found in Greek physicians to the gladiators, most notably a name you'll recognize, Santosh Galen. Mm. Yeah, the the great anatomist Galen. So Tracy, well, Dr. how do you Gazzo's think he learned all that anatomy? <laughs> <laughs> Studying kind of well muscled. Uh, specimens of athletes in these uh, gladiatorial arenas then? So uh, the physicians would develop, uh, they would treat athletes for sore muscles, game-related injuries after the Olympics, which was not yet common uh, in the world of the time. And gladiators, especially high-ranking ones, were assigned a personal physician to help treat injuries sustained during combat. Now, if we move just a little bit further up to a physician maybe watching those games rather than being the personal physician to them, we have <laughs> one of the teachers of Hippocrates, who's Herodicus, and he's credited with the development of therapeutic exercises that became standardized across the Olympiad. So whether you were running the torch or whatever the some of the earliest Olympic games were, there were a series of meditations and movements that Herodicus developed. And as we build on that through the years, those slowly become to develop into 
the proto field of sports medicine. So I'll, I'll list off a couple names. And please, Tracy, any of these that you've heard of, jump in and and fill us in on the others. But what I can tell you is we have Herodicus, who developed these therapeutic exercises. Then Santorio Santorius. <laughs> and I'm always on the lookout for good movie-sounding names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So what, uh, Santoro, Italian, I'm guessing? Yes. Okay, uh, got it. So he studied human metabolism and pulse rates for over 30 years, recording temperature and pulses after different activities, including eating and sleeping. So he helped to advance the understanding of the effect physical movement has on body minutia. Okay. Then staying in Italy, uh, but jumping up to the year 1500 or 1569, you have Girolamo Mercurial or Mercuriale, who published De Arta Gymnastica, the very first complete textbook about how exercise affects medicine and your overall health. Now, I bring him up because he actually published several other books about children's health and human anatomy. So he really was the first pediatric sports medicine specialist. Sweet. Awesome. I'm learning <laughs> more about my field. I, I didn't even know he was the true leader. So uh, Then we get to another one of my favorite names, um, jumping into the 1700s, Bernardino Ramazzini. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'd better not be making some of these up, Josh. <laughs> right? The the Italian physician name generator that I just yeah. keep handy on my desk. I, hey, if that's not the next, like, chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> so right. we had... Gerolamo looking at kids as well as what exercises affect your pulse and posture. Ramazzini looked at workers, the proletariat, to determine how different labors and occupations can affect posture and movement and health. So now once we see that there's a relationship between movement and well-being, these three physicians together, their works combined, start gaining popularity in the 1800s when the Olympic Games, remember ancient Greece, were now mm -hmm. being reintroduced. So when the Olympics finally were getting started coming back into the public eye again in the modern world, we took the findings from these physicians as well as a handful of others. And this was used to start training and in some cases help cheat uh, for many of the Olympic physicians in those early games. Really not just helping someone recover from injury, but injury prevention, right? So this is what all these exercises are to stretch out, stay limber, avoid injury, all these kind of things. So I'm guessing that's what a lot of these were about as well, as well as strength and conditioning. Absolutely. No, I, that's, I feel like the pediatrician in me um, just loves the prevention side of sports medicine. So promote healthy movement patterns and by appropriate exercises in PE classes and warmups and such um, to really prevent injuries. And, um, you know, it's been actually studied a lot um, in the area of soccer, probably being the number one. There's a whole set of exercises called FIFA 11 plus. Uh, that's one example of a exercise program that has been really shown to decrease injury rate. Not only does it decrease the rate of 
injuries such as ACL tears. Um, so those are ligaments uh, in the knee, um, tear of the ligament in the knee. But it also increased by doing these exercises um, three times a week, this whole program. Um, teams won more games than teams who didn't do this exercise. Program. All the way back as far as ancient Greece, all the way till now, sharp understanding of how to take care of the human body so that you're in tip-top shape, but also avoid injury and can continue to, I guess, either gladiate or any other sport that they wanted to do at the time. <laughs> gladiate, yeah. Santosh. Don't sadiate. Yeah. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> You're Got gonna it. bring back the the old sport of uh, of gladiating, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh God, I really hope not. That was. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hope. I hope they find enough of those giant Q-tips. Uh, <laughs> your conception of sports is really framed right around about 1987. I <laughs> jump back a little more. I'm not quite done with the Wayback Machine. We have to bring it up to the modern day. Oh yes, and please. Now we'll head to the Jazz Age in 1920, specifically 1927, when the Harvard Business School, uh, in what I'm sure is completely unrelated to the Great Depression, came up with the Harvard Fatigue Laboratory. Okay. <laughs> Many people credit that laboratory as the origin of exercise physiology in the U.S. Its director was David Bruce Dill. Really interesting guy. Are you familiar with him, Tracy, or no? I have not heard his name before, so I, I'm learning a lot on the show today. So he was interested in environmental effects on exercise performance. And among other topics, he studied the effects of altitude on exercise and thermal regulation. So he's kind of the guy who found out about heat stroke and uh, training in high altitude for soccer or other types of games. He was often one of those researchers who was a subject in his own studies, like walking across the desert with only a donkey and a dog for company. That's the All one right. they, they specifically picked out. And it made me think of maybe he was the man in the desert on a horse with no name. Uh, yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, I would have never thought that that was about a sports medicine doctor, but it could be. That looks at environment on physiology. And we have a couple of journal articles later on in this episode that look at how the environment may affect your health. Then we get to 1950 when the National Athletic Trainer Association was established to enhance the quality of health care for adult and youth athletes. Now, I believe that athletic trainer is a specific specialty in sports medicine or what are the different fields because uh, you mentioned you're a pediatric sports medicine specialist but you also have some athletic affiliations so first to just explain what an athletic trainer is um so athletic trainer is um Athletic training is a profession that they have completed a um, undergraduate degree, usually with an emphasis in kinesiology, and then usually have a one to two year graduate degree um, that then gets them um, able to be credentialed as an athletic trainer. Um, California is actually the only state in the United States that doesn't officially license athletic trainers. Um, oh, no. Hopefully someday it will be um, official. but um, 
I say athletic trainers are our boots on the ground, like classically, um, and still do work on the field with the athletes. They're the ones that are employed by um, by sports teams, and they so for professional teams, they will travel with the team to every game. They are there at every practice, before every practice, after every practice, um, dedicated really to these athletes and and know the teams inside and out. And we'll also work at club level or high school level um, within schools. A newer role for athletic trainers has been really as a physician extender, um, where they'll work alongside a either orthopedic sports physician or a primary care sports physician and really help to expand the education uh, we can provide patients and um, just improve the care overall. There's even some studies actually that have shown that one of the best ways to um, decrease injuries uh, on the field is to have an athletic trainer present. They truly do make a difference in the care that is provided for um, for uh, players on the field. And so sometimes schools come to us and they they have you know a surplus of this or that um, monetarily, and so they say, well, you know, should we should we get these these fancier helmets than we already have, or should we you know get new benches or what have you? And my answer is always apply it to you know getting a full time athletic trainer because that's usually or uh, it's been shown to be the most effective way to uh, prevent injury for athletes. So um, they really cool. play a great role on the team. I've thrown a lot of Italian names at you, and you may wonder why I keep focusing on Italy so much when I told you that this field (laughs) dates back to ancient Greece. In 1958, after the Second World War, the very first school dedicated to a specialization in sport medicine was established in Milan, Italy, by Professor Rodolfo Margaria. Not Margarita, (laughs) Margarita. Margarita, got it, okay. And today... Uh, even in the modern day, Italy is one of the few countries in the world that has a public system of pre-participation medical exams for all sports activity. So people playing sport organized by any national federation of sports promotion have to undertake periodical medical visits to get a a certification of eligibility to play. Screening tests and physical exams are sport-specific and listed in decrees issued by the Ministry of Health that regulate competitive sports, non-competitive sports, competitive sports for disabled people, for disabled people, and professional sports. And since since its founding, it has been mandatory for all professional and amateur athletes to obtain a medical certification to play any sport at all ages. Italy's been a like a real leader in this component and um kind of even to this day um you know as we're having debates in the United States about whether every athlete should get an EKG and echocardiogram um prior to participation a lot of the data that um at least initially was quoted before we really acquired it in the United States um came out of Italy because their screening protocols are so extensive and they do um screen everyone with EKG and so um, it makes for, um, you know, a kind of an interesting, um, interesting set of data and interesting approach uh, that we haven't necessarily been able to mimic in the United States, but, um, but has provided a lot of information. Cool. With all of that, we can finally park the Wayback Machine. And I believe the <laughs> next uh, section of this episode is, are, are you ready for some football? Because let's talk about what all the commotion <laughs> All the commotion yeah. is with some oh, of these geez. sports injuries. 
<laughs> I, I don't know that I I kind of prepped Dr. Zaslow for the punnage. Of course, a big recent news story was the news around the injury to DeMar Hamlin that caused him to require resuscitation on the field. And of course, uh, this is when doctors got to become, uh, well, armchair quarterbacks, but also yeah. physicians, <laughs> because instantly across Twitter, across Mastodon, uh, occasionally even on TikTok, everyone had a theory and slowly, 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 we began to see these theories converge into what we think caused the injury, although I believe no formal report has been issued yet. So the general, the general hypothesis, for those of you playing along at home, is that we think this may have been related to something called commotio cordis, where a sudden blunt impact to the chest can cause cardiac death in the absence of cardiac damage. And it's because it hits you moving so fast, it actually disrupts the electrical signals telling your heart to beat or to have it contract. What you see happening when uh, somebody gets hit with a car battery or those electric pads and they go flying halfway across the room, which would definitely kill you outside <laughs> of a movie setting, but yeah. a similar mechanism of injuries. So it was very first described in the middle of 18th century in the context of chest trauma among workers, but it's really only been pretty sporadically reported and mostly in a sports setting and mostly in a pediatric sports setting. So I figured we could ask our expert to maybe just comment on what this is. I'm not saying, you know, this is what we are diagnosing him with just what we think may be going on. And it's different from con cardiac contusio uh, or contusio cordis, which is what you may see in motor vehicle accidents, uh, accidents from the seatbelt slamming against your chest. Right. Yeah. So so not specific at all to uh, Hanlon, but just in general with a commotio cordis, um, you're exactly right. So it's um, with uh, the contusio, contusion cordis, it's more that you're getting a bruise to the heart and that just happens from a big impact. Commotio cordis, you're just really, really, really unlucky because you have to get hit um, in the chest at just the right part of the cardiac cycle. And the, the period that you're vulnerable for this injury is last like 1% of the whole cycle. And the whole cycle is, you know, under, under a second. So this is, you know, minuscule amount of time that you just have to get hit right at the right time. Um, and, and if you're hit right at that right time in right, the right spot, then yes, it, it affects how the electrical signals are passing through the heart and telling it to contract. And, uh, and as you said, you need to have, uh, the, um, the re, um, you need to have your heart restarted um, because it's just the electrical cycle is off. It's really bad luck. The reason I think the studies all show that kids are um, more vulnerable to this is just that they don't have as, as strong of a chest wall. They don't have as much protection of the heart as adults do. Um, so they, they have a thinner, more flexible chest wall. So it just leaves them more vulnerable to that contact coming in at just the right time um, for this to happen. And this is even when they're wearing protective gear like chest plates or 
football armor, right? Pads, Josh. They're wearing pads. <laughs> tomato, tomato, Santosh. Yeah, no, it can definitely, it can definitely happen. Again, if if the hit is just at the right time, and those pads just aren't enough to um, to decrease the force to the area. Um, but uh, a lot of the, the padding can be helpful, um, and we know kind of when you look at ball size and such that um, smaller balls, like specifically baseball, baseball is one where it's been more commonly described because I think kids are on a mound close to the batter, the batter hits the ball. They don't have time to react. So they get hit in the chest. Um, And they found that smaller balls actually carried a higher risk for commotio um, cordis just because that, that impact is concentrated in a smaller surface area. So, um, you know, theoretically, uh, as you describe, football armor should really decrease your risk of this occurring, um, but it can still happen. And to give you an idea at home for how often this actually does occur, which again, not often, why, which is why everyone started speculating, the National Commercial Cordis Registry, looking from 1996 to spring 2007, so one of the longer study periods, had only 188 cases recorded in that 10-year period, with about half of those during organized sports. 96% of the victims were male. The average age or the mean age was about 14 years, and fewer than one in five survived the incident when it occurred. Now, interestingly, the speed, and the reason we see this most commonly in baseball rather than football is the speeds involved because the velocity of the impact object had to be at least 40 miles an hour or 64 kilometers an hour in order to cause ventricular fibrillation, at least in an animal model. Whereas if you had velocities of 20 miles an hour or 32 kilometers, you are not getting this sudden change in the heart rhythms. The (laughs) speed of impact really has to go. So that's why you may see it in something like NFL. These guys are freight trains. They can really get up to a decent turn of speed and make that impact in just the right place with a... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tiny little target like a football helmet. It truly is amazing that it happens because you just have to have so many pieces that line up just right um, for it to actually occur. But um but it, you know, definitely can, as described. So uh, not not often, but uh, but the, everything can line up just right uh, every once in a while. You heard me give you actual velocities at which this could occur: forty miles an hour, uh, or sixty-four kilometers. And you may be wondering, Josh, how did you get the information? How how do you know just how fast this impact has to be made? 
when we're looking at an injury that really comes from one small object hitting another one. Oh, well, are you going to tell us sad experimenting on poor little animal stories? Yeah, says the, the guy who operates on rats. As well, mice, regular mice. Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't don't implicate me in in harming those poor little rats. Uh, yeah, so, my, my model is a mouse. Yeah. So Tufts Medical Center actually developed an animal model that sought to recreate specifically the clinical characteristics of Kamosho as it's described in sporting events. And part of this model involves a juvenile, again, pediatrics, a juvenile male swine. Now that's a pig, not some internet troll, although I'm sure, sure you could make an <laughs> argument. Oh, God. Okay. Um, a juvenile male swine is anesthetized and placed feet down in a sling so then they basically swing them upside down like bats where the heart lies opposed to the left chest wall. And then they take a baseball machine or one of those little tennis ball launchers and fire oh. baseballs or lacrosse oh. balls directly <laughs> over the cardiac silhouette where there's no lung tissue blocking, just like in humans. Okay. All right. And that's how they learned that the specific arrhythmia that happens when you keep whumping on somebody is ventricular fibrillation. So it's not like they're routinely doing this. The study's done. It it achieved the answer they were right. looking for. Yes. And but then someone the, the... thought, let's go into a meat <laughs> shop, you know, like you see in Rocky. But instead <laughs> of punching, yeah, unnecessary sports illusion movie number, whatever. Uh, sure. Instead of punching the sides of meat, you just turn a baseball machine on and see if you can cause heart attacks or cardiac death in the pit. <laughs> so I, I'm almost, well, no, I'm not almost. I know for a fact that you're, you're right about the kind of experimental conditions in terms of they probably had to write to their ethics board and say, hey, we're just going to use X number of pigs, juvenile pigs, and we're not going to we're going to cause them as little harm as possible, which is why they were completely anesthetized. But okay, as long as it was a really small sample size in order to obtain the results they needed, and then they stopped. Yeah, but we're we're definitely pushing the longest know, running scientific trial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Thirty years. No. Oh, uh, <laughs> Stop it. Tell the truth. Um. But the earliest description of this condition is believed to have shown up in a British newspaper in 1898. And it's very similar to what you hear from the Hamlin case, where in that report, it was less a football helmet and it was instead a cricket ball of moderate velocity is described as striking a 13 year old batter in the chest, resulting in instantaneous collapse with an impact bruise over the precordium, which is one of the most typical scenarios uh, when we see it with baseball. And unfortunately, that child died, but it was odd enough that he was in otherwise good health that it was written up as a case report and a newspaper article, and that is why we still have access. And that's one of the earliest documented cases, although there probably were ones... Actually, I bet there were some in Hialeah. If you look back to uh, more indigenous people... I'd lose my own head if it wasn't attached. And that brings us, of course, to the next very common topic of sports injuries, not decapitation, but <laughs> but concussions. Uh, I'm sure 
that you have a lot to say about this. Where where should I start? Are we better off in terms of concussion science and understanding how it happens and how to prevent it and how to treat it than, you know, say when, you know, we were younger and we were both in training or something like that? Like, has it has it been coming along? Have have things gotten safer and better? Uh, have we advanced past the three strike rule for concussions? Do oh. we have different? <laughs> yeah. Do we have yeah. different standards for NFL players versus 14-year-olds? So, well, it's, it's interesting uh, that you say that. So, um, so yes and no. I, I think we really have come a long way in the sense of, number one, in awareness. Um, when I played high school sports, I couldn't tell you what a concussion was. I didn't have one that I'm aware of. I don't know any of my teammates that ever had one. And nowadays, if you talk to most high school students, I think they know what a concussion is. They even know what the symptoms are. They may or may not know how important it is to share those symptoms. Uh, oftentimes, they they do know how important it is, and thus they don't share them because they know if they share that they've had the symptoms, they might be held out of sport for a while. So I think in awareness, we've really come miles and miles. I also think that we've improved a lot in our management in the sense that we used to tell people to go in a dark room and don't come out until you feel better. And um, we've learned a lot. We have now studies that show us that that's not the best strategy that makes people have more emotional related symptoms, more symptoms in general, just more awareness of their symptoms. And so we do understand the importance of getting people back to their normal activities of daily living, maybe not getting back to a contact sport right away, but getting back to their activities of um, daily life. And so for kids, that's trying to get them back to school, but not just dumping them in the deep end and sending them to a whole day of school, but you know, gradually in getting back uh, to school with lots of support and accommodations. And so I think in those ways, we've learned a lot. We now understand that it's a, a functional problem. Uh, so, you know, when people say, well, what's a concussion? Um, it's not bleeding in your brain. It's not swelling in your brain. <laughs> sure. I, I know when I started out, I, I would say, well, it's like a bruise. It's not exactly, but it's like a bruise. But I don't say that at all anymore because that just confuses everybody. Um, yeah, it's, that's I, what uh, medical school for us, um, at least I graduated in 2007, I think even in neuroscience, like that's the that's what we were taught. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really <laughs> only some of the more recent research that has shown us that it's really, it's a functional problem. It happens at the level of the um, brain cell, the neuron, and, um, and then we just have a, a cell dysfunction that occurs. And then we have to wait for that to re-equilibrate. And from the studies, it shows that most of those changes at the neuron level actually resolve in about seven to 10 days. Um, so that, those studies were done in some in rats. I know we, we talked about the poor swine that the baseball hit, but you know, we've, we've learned a lot. Um, I think we also have learned, I know you mentioned the three strike rule. So I think what you're referring to was it used to be that we'd say, well, if you get three concussions, you're retired from all contact sports. So the rats taught us a little bit about this too. Uh, they they did some studies that um, they they hit some poor rats in the head and before they did this they let them run through a maze and they saw how fast they could run through the maze and then they hit the rat on the head and then they followed and saw whether it could get back to normal and if you just hit the rat once and you let the rat recover completely they actually totally regain um, their speed through the maze no problem but if you hit the rat 
again, before they have recovered, um, then they don't regain that speed again. And so that's made a real big difference in our clinical practice in the sense that um, one of our real determining factors for return to play is have they have, has the patient returned to baseline? And so if they've returned to baseline, meaning all their symptoms are gone, they're back to doing everything they need to do for their school performance or work performance, even sometimes if they've done a baseline neurocognitive test, uh, then we will compare their post-injury test to that. Now, we know that if they've completely recovered from their uh, injury and they return and let's say two weeks later, they do get hit in the head again, overall current accepted thinking, although there's a lot of debate in sports medicine, um, is that they have returned to normal and it is a new injury. It's not a compounding injury. Gotcha. Um, okay. So that's a long, long description of uh, to what you so asked. So how many times can you get a concussion Let's in a season? No, 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 no. Oh, I thought, <laughs> Listen, I thought you were being... okay, okay, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> how many times can you get a concussion in a season before they say you are out for the season or is there not a specific number anymore everything's case by case because we don't have a magic number at this point so there's no absolute number um it is absolutely individualized um based on the athlete um based on their recovery you know were have they been recovering quickly their symptoms resolved within a few days and they were showing all signs of readiness to return by one to two weeks um, then, you know, you could argue that they could have multiple and, um, be fine. But to me, three in a, you know, in a season that may be eight to 12 weeks, um, does sound like a fair, like a lot. So, you know, it would be one of those that, um, we would definitely be having a conversation with the family about what are the pros and cons here, balancing the passion of a kid's participation in a sport versus the risk to them. Um, cause you can get a concussion from anything. I, I always joke. I mean, you can, you know, I have patients who were walking down the street in a windstorm, got hit by a tree branch and they got oh. a concussion. I have kids who are home studying, spinning around on their chair and hit their head on the edge of a shelf. Um, so you um, have kids who can fall on artificial versus natural grass and be at yeah. a fair risk for a concussion, which again, this is a real thing, Santosh. Just because I don't know okay. sports doesn't mean I don't no. look at my studies. <laughs> so, okay, so, getting a little defensive. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so among high school athletes in the U.S., about 20% of concussions result from the person hitting their head on the playing surface. Oh, and, right, right, right. Tumble. And artificial turf is becoming increasingly popular across the country with over 16,000 synthetic fields in the U.S., and over a thousand new ones being built every year. And apparently, news to me, these synthetic playing fields are harder than grass. And so ankle and knee injuries tend to be more common. Uh, and researcher Ian Chun at the University of Hawaii actually started conducting a series of experiments, which I love. You're going to like this. He took a 20 kilogram mannequin onto 10 natural grass playing fields. <laughs> oh, I love this. And nine okay. And nine <laughs> artificial turf surfaces. He then placed accelerometers onto the right ear, top of the head, and forehead of the mannequin before he fit it with an American football helmet. And he then shoved it off a table from a height of 170 centimeters, chosen specifically to simulate the height of a teen athlete, 
with the mannequin landing on its left, front, or back, and then measured the impact. And here's the part that really clinched it for me. After 1,700 total drops. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's, that's power right there. Okay. He found that the impact deceleration was significantly higher on synthetic playing fields in all three positions and could be as much as 23 Gs higher on artificial grass compared to natural surfaces. Whereas previous research... Uh, within the sports medical field has shown that an impact of just 40 Gs or higher increases the chance for concussion. So just being on artificial turf kicks that up about 23 Gs from wherever you were. Something to consider. So uh, yeah. so play on natural grass or in snow or mud, but I guess just falling down on grass, you know, not real grass, <laughs> but even falling down on grass can increase the risk of concussion. I know that my, so my little one is taking gymnastics right now and she is just turning, just turned seven years old. Um, I practiced martial arts for a really long time. Uh, I wish this was taught a little bit more, Tracy, but um, the actually learning how to fall yeah. as, a, as an athlete, you know, actually that being an essential part of training, uh, no matter what the sport, uh, especially to protect the head in sports where there is no helmet. I'm, I'm guessing that's that's getting a little more emphasis nowadays. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would say um, we've looked at a lot of different biomechanics programs, looking at, you know, preventing knee injuries and other injuries like that. Um, but I can't think of a study that's actually looked at, like, you know, learning how to fall and how does that improve your... Um, your risk of further injury. Um, the only thing I can think of that's in that vein is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with parkour. Um, so oh, parkour. sweet. Parkour. <laughs> is that I don't know if you know what it is. It's, it's <laughs> the French martial art of running away. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. It's running. Yeah. The, the, I love the, the way it's described as um, running the most or moving in the most direct route from you know point A to point B, but that direct route may mean like jumping between high rises um, and you know scaling a thin wall rather than going down the stairs, crossing the street, and going back up the going stairs. Going back up, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> um, yeah. But in they they did look at parkour that some of the injury profiles um, that because you you actually learn to fall because you're learning different landing techniques, um, that they were actually seeing some um, improvement in um, in their jumping technique compared to the average um, athlete. Um, I'm not quoting the study exactly, but um, that they really did notice a difference in the parkour athletes versus a regular athlete that they had a better um, uh, profile for um, for falling and falling without injury. So um, so I think there's some truth to be uh, said for what you're describing, but I can't think of any other program that has truly um, worked on that. So uh, now, now we have a new area of research. One of oh, the next wow. things I would love to hear your thoughts on is that a lot of these concussion protocols and research studies have all been developed, even when they're looked at pediatrics versus professional, they're on men the they're written by men or they're written studied on young boys and we see a lot of concussions that also happen in women and girls who are playing softball who are playing soccer uh who are playing basketball have you noticed a difference um either as a physician for any of the teams or just in your day-to-day -day work 
Are females at higher risk for different kinds of sports injuries? Do we not see concussions reported as much for them because there are fewer ones? Or what's are there gender or age differences in the kind of injuries you come across? Yeah, so good question. Um, you know, I think the data really shows that um, females tend to report their symptoms more. Depending on the study that you look at, the numbers are actually higher in females than males. The symptom profile may be different. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, most of our protocols really are based on male athletes, uh, even though we're obviously, you know, applying that to all athletes. Um, and and I look forward to kind of future, um, they, they, it's called the International Consensus, um, that it, uh, where it's a group that reviews all the current uh, medical literature on the topic and then comes up with updates to the protocol. I think we're, we're due for the next one. But I think it will be interesting because I think there has been a lot more research in the female athlete and to see how that will um, change our protocols or change our approach and, and whether do we need a different approach for female versus male athlete. I feel that everyone is still kind of getting the care that they need just because of the nature of concussion management that it is so individualized. So you might, never mind male and female, you might have in the same day in your clinic, two 19-year-old, uh, you know, Caucasian male linebackers that are six foot two, 220, and both coming in with concussions. But just because of even their differences in between those individuals might receive uh, quite different paths to recovery for their concussions because of their presentations and their individual neurophysiology and recovery, et cetera. A hundred percent. That's exactly. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, to, to athletes that are seemingly um, very similar, even same injury mechanism, but they, they come with different background in the sense of, you know, if they're someone who's susceptible to, you know, motion sickness, or do they have any underlying um, anxiety, depression, where were they just even emotionally going into this injury? It was, is football everything to them or were they just kind of <laughs> yeah. out for fun? And all those things really change the symptom profile that is experienced and then how we manage it, how we manage that patient. So it is really, um, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, it makes, I mean, every patient is totally unique um, when it comes to concussion. So whereas, you know, when it comes to some of the other things I do, like treating a, a you know, a fracture of the wrist, 10 that look identical in the, and you're going to put them in a cast for a few weeks and you can expect their recovery and they almost all go down a really similar uh, trajectory. It, it's totally different with uh, concussion concussion. So, um, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. If you had to have maybe two or three, you know, here's what I want you to keep in mind while you're playing or practicing, um, especially with concussion, what, what would you tell them? Oh, wow. So yes, I could talk for hours on this, but, um, I will try <laughs> to come up with a couple few, a few points. Um, so for concussion, um, I think my main point would be, you know, a phrase that's often thrown around, um, when in doubt, sit out. Meaning if you, if you got hit or even that you went shoulder to shoulder and you have some symptoms that are um, within the range of concussion, it's better to come out right away, 
get assessed. If it wasn't a concussion, you'll be allowed back in. But if it was a concussion, um, the best thing you're doing for your recovery is to start that recovery right away, not finish the practice, not finish the game, but just come right out. And this is where we have medical evidence to prove that. They looked at athletes who came out of the game right away or practice right away versus those who stayed in. And those who came out right away recovered 2.5 times faster than those who um, continued to play. And um, so for me, that's just a really important point to share with athletes because I know the motivation is just, you know, I got to be there for my team. I got to, you know, be out there. And um, and really you're hurting your team by staying in because then you're going to take longer to recover. So you're going to be out longer. Um, and um, so I think that's part A of the concussion. And part B would be just the importance of being honest about your symptoms because there is a concern if you're hit in the head again before you've had this initial initial functional recovery, um, that you can have what's called second impact syndrome. And that is where there is swelling in the brain and severe swelling, and it can cause devastating consequences. And um, so I think those are my two big uh, concussion uh, points. And maybe my third to top it off for concussion would be um, that by definition, it resolves. So to decrease that anxiety that goes with concussion, um, that if you treat it right, you'll recover completely. Uh, that's really wonderful to hear because I, I know a lot of the time people hear the horror stories first and they yeah. don't hear about all the successes. I'd, I'd venture to guess that that second point that you gave us about being honest about your symptoms, that's the one that you can probably extend to the entire body, head to toe. So that we don't have people who are likewise trying to hide a, you know, like a fracture or, you know, a torn, you know, tendon or ligament just because they want to stay on the field. Absolutely. I guess what I, I, there's a, you know, the the extra level of, you know, we kind of say it jokingly, but we only have one brain. Um, You've got two arms and we can fix an arm, (laughs) but it's much harder to fix a brain. So, um, so that's where we kind of, you know, well, yes, we never encourage athletes to play through the pain, you know, different than the concept of no pain, no gain, meaning work hard. But if you're truly feeling pain that is increasing as you're participating, that's something you really want to listen to. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely, um, we see, we do see overuse injuries in athletes and even in young athletes, um, we see stress fractures in kids. Um, and that's from doing too much, um, and possibly not with the right mechanics of it. And, um, so we do definitely want you to listen to that pain. So I might have to just take a second here and just compose a short letter to my old high school coach to be sent later. All right. I think I've got it, Satosh. (laughs) I've got it. Ready? Got it. Ready, ready. I have this thing where I get older, but I keep on playing. Second impacts will be my doom. When the concussion hits and yet I still stay in and playing, I wake up in a hospital room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. You'll end up in crisis, tale as old as time. You'll wake up fractured, impactured. One day we'll watch as your 
fractured because you got tired of ignoring all of our advice. Not Not a good one. Career in in a, the nice jingle, so um, I can yeah. you know I'm ready for retirement now. So <laughs> <There> you- <laughs> yeah, we can we can market that out and just sit back and collect the royalties. Yeah, we can tail <laughs> swiftly solve all our problems. That's <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Tracy, can you just briefly tell us, so we had gone through a lot of uh, the history of sports medicine. Um, You did uh, mention to us before that uh, you had a little bit of, uh, you know, knowledge about the more uh, recent evolution of sports med and kind of the founding of your field in more recent decades. Did you want to tell us about that? Um, sure. So um, the field of primary care sports medicine, so which specifically refers to those who come from a background of family medicine, internal medicine, or pediatrics, um, or even emergency medicine, um, and go on to do you know further training, really didn't begin until the 80s. Um, and it wasn't until 1991 that um, our national society, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, was established. So it's a very new field. And um, and even it really grew out of family medicine initially. And um, when I was training um, in the mid 2000s in um, pediatric sports medicine, um, there were less than 100 in the country that were pediatric board certified and um, had c- completed all the credentialing of um, primary care sports medicine. So um, for me, it's been a really exciting road to, to be part of um, a new field that is really growing in the sense of in modern medicine, as, as uh, you so nicely um, kind of recanted the, uh, the, the older history, um, you know, the newer history, there's just so much uh, research that is exploding in sports medicine and I feel like we're learning more and more every day. And in my career of sports medicine um, thus far, it's uh, already changed so much. I mean, even how we manage um, concussion that we used to tell people to go in the dark room, don't exercise. And now we say exercise is not only safe, but it helps you get better from concussion. So, um, you know, so that's the very short history um, from, from my perspective. Right up until we start giving personal physicians to all our gladiators again. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're kind of there in some respect at the professional level. That's pretty much how it works. So uh, the more things, the more things change. Yes. (laughs) So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links (laughs) to do that are in the show notes, along with links to suggestions for further reading. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and Friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. Thank you again to Dr. Tracy Zaslow, the Medical Director for Pediatric Sports Medicine at the Curlin Job Institute at Cedars-Sinai, a primary care sports physician and pediatric specialist. I think I learned more than I shared, but it was really a, a treat to get to enjoy this conversation and uh, talk about my favorite topic of sports medicine. Until next time, as <laughs> always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, and a helmet on your head. Hey! And once you've done all those things, book a ticket, find a game, look for somewhere to go, and after that, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 